As acting president, elected president, prime minister, and then president again, Vladimir Putin has now ruled the Russian Federation since December 31st, 1999. That is almost 23 years. Where were you 23 years ago? I was a sophomore in high school. Today, I have four children, and I turn 40 later this year. Vladimir Putin has been Russia's leader for all that time. 8,302 days and counting. Whether by some Machiavellian genius, others' desperation, or maybe just his own dumb luck, Vladimir Putin now finds himself essential to the regime under his control. For years, he consolidated this power by squashing the free press, binding wealth to political loyalty, and gradually outlawing all forms of genuine opposition. But you already know this story. This is just contemporary Russian politics and modern Russian history. What we don't know is what happens when Vladimir Putin finally does the decent thing and dies already. If you spend any time on social media or listening to news pundits dunk on the dictator whose longevity in office is catching up to Joseph Stalin's, you already know that rumors circulate constantly about Putin's health. He's getting old, of course, becoming a septuagenarian on October 7th, which advances him to just four years shy of the age at which Stalin died. But a death by old age is probably still decades away for a man whose physical survival is one of Russia's greatest national security priorities. In other words, basing future Russia policies on Putin's looming death is likely an approach that won't pay off anytime soon. But what if Putin does die suddenly? What the hell happens to Russia and the rest of the world then? Welcome back to The Naked Pravda, folks. I'm Kevin Rothrock, Medusa's English language managing editor. With this episode, we're kicking off a new season of the podcast, where each show explores a hypothetical event and its potential consequences for Russia and its relationship with the rest of the world. You spend a few years asking experts about subjects related to headline news, and sooner or later, you realize that a lot of these conversations build up to a what-if question. What if Russia loses in Ukraine? What happens in Ukraine if China invades Taiwan? Or there's today's question. What if Putin dies tomorrow? Answering these questions is impossible, of course, insofar as the future is unknowable. But speculating, or at least interrogating the questions themselves, can be rewarding and worthwhile. And it's these wild hypotheticals that often animate the public's interest in a news story in the first place, which means it's just honest intellectually to ask these questions openly. Before jumping into today's interviews, allow me to remind listeners that Medusa now relies on contributions from people like you in our international audience to sustain our everyday operations. Millions in Russia and other countries read our news coverage. Even though they're now based abroad, our journalists obtain exclusive information about what goes on behind the closed doors of the Russian authorities. Our team delivers Medusa's most important stories in English, and we reach thousands of journalists and professionals all over the world with our special English-language newsletter and podcast. This one, in fact. So please visit our website to make a one-time or recurring donation and tell your friends and colleagues about our fundraising if you can. And now let me introduce you to the host of today's episode, Medusa's very own Eilish Hart, who is also here to announce Medusa's newest project and latest creation. Welcome back to The Naked Pravda, Medusa's English-language podcast. 
I'm Eilish Hart, your host for this week. And before we get into the episode, I'd like to tell you about an exciting new project I'm heading up. I'm now the editor of The Beat, a special newsletter from Medusa that delivers original reporting and deep analysis on Central and Eastern Europe, the Caucasus, and Central Asia. This isn't a news digest. The Beat brings one feature story directly to your inbox once a week. Some of these stories may appear on our website, but many of them won't. So make sure to visit medusa.io forward slash en and subscribe to The Beat so you never miss a dispatch. And now, on with the show. Ever since Vladimir Putin ordered a full-scale invasion of Ukraine in February, there's been a lot of speculation about his future. From media reports about Putin's alleged ill health to punditry about the likelihood of a palace coup, all of these debates circle around one key question. How long will Vladimir Putin be able to remain in power? Putin is about to turn 70 in October, and by all appearances, he isn't planning to retire. As you may recall, Russia's constitution was amended in 2020, making it possible for Putin to run in two more presidential elections. In other words, he could very well stay in power until 2036, at which point he'll be 83 years old. That said, no one lives forever, and just like Mikhail Gorbachev and Queen Elizabeth II, Vladimir Putin will one day pass away. But what if this were to happen while he was still in office? What then? This is hardly a simple question, but I set out to investigate it nonetheless. To begin, I wanted to know what Putin's death would mean for Russia's domestic politics in the short term. So I turned to political scientist Fabian Burkhardt, a postdoctoral research associate at the Leibniz Institute for East and Southeast European Studies, whose research focuses on executive politics and elites in Russia. As you know, the theme of the episode is the death of Putin. So if he were to suddenly die while in office, what is the existing legal framework for a transition of power? Who steps into the presidency and then what happens after that? So I think there are really two documents to look at in detail. And one is the Russian constitution. And the second one is the law and the election of the president of the Russian Federation. And so the constitution uh, states in Article 92, that if the president is incapable of acting as a president, uh, which includes a natural death, then the prime minister would automatically become the interim president. So under current circumstances, this would be prime minister Mikhail Mishustin, who would become the interim president. And then Mishustin obviously would have the full command of presidential powers, except uh, for a few competences. Another rule that is important to keep in mind that snap presidential elections would have to take place within three months after the death of the president. So we have this kind of broad temporal framework in which presidential elections have to be called. And in this law on the election of the president of the Russian Federation, uh, there are a few more details that are important to keep in mind, especially in Article 5. Uh, so it's the Federation Council, so the upper chamber of the Russian parliament which is obliged to assign a date for a snap presidential elections within two weeks after the presidential death. So a fairly short period of time within kind of uh, the elite and, and state bodies would make up their minds and, and take this decision to call presidential elections. And if the Federation Council refuses to call these early presidential elections, 
then the Russian Central Election Commission will automatically assign a date uh, for presidential elections. So there's kind of this backup mechanism. And what is also interesting that presidential elections will even be held in a state of emergency or uh, during martial law. So even under these uh, exceptional circumstances, the constitution provisions they they envision presidential elections. So. Knowing how centralized Putin's regime is and knowing that things in Russia aren't necessarily done by the book, how might this transfer of power play out in terms of elite dynamics, particularly in the context of the ongoing war? Do you think Putin dying suddenly would create, you know, kind of a total power vacuum at the top? What is interesting is that both formally in the constitution and in laws, it's fairly clear that the presidency is kind of the main institution. Therefore, the president as the person is the main actor in the game of authoritarian politics. And that coincides with the informal networks, with informal rules, where all the players need to understand that it's the presidency that, that is the, the crucial actor. It's the president that is the main arbiter who wields power and, and institutions and actors that have tried to challenge in the past two decades uh, this kind of idea and institutional setup and also the setup of informal networks within the elite, they were kind of either co-opted into the system or were repressed or were forced into, into exile. So I think my argument would be that sudden death of an authoritarian ruler does not only raise the question who would be the next president, but also raises major questions about how power is distributed within the state system. So be between state bodies, say that the parliament, uh, the regions or the federal government, but also within the elite. So it will not just trigger a search of like, who will be the, the, the next president or uh, trigger this process of initiating uh, snap presidential elections. So it might also initiate kind of this uh, struggle of redistribute power. Broadly speaking, I think there are two ways of how one might think about such a process. One major view is that in highly personalized regimes, there are little coordination mechanisms among the elite because it's the personalist ruler that is kind of the, the main arbiter in the system. So once uh, this arbiter is absent, it's really a problem of how elite actors coordinate. So if there's no one to, to coordinate, the logical consequence is that chaos or kind of succession or struggle will likely follow because the stakes are high about personal security of elite actors, about property rights, etc. The other uh, view is in fact quite the opposite, that uh, even though a highly personalized regime system existed before, it is still not completely deinstitutionalized and some sort of collective action within state bodies and within the elite is, is still possible. And in fact, we do have uh, some examples of such kind of collective action uh, during transition moments in Turkmenistan and in Uzbekistan. And so we might also presume that, that this could happen, so a natural death uh, of Putin, but still uh, elite actors, even though they, they are competing, they have competed for loyalty and attention of Putin before, but at such, such a crucial moment, they, they will find some sort of avenues uh, to coordinate and communicate and find a solution of how to manage this regime transition until the next uh, upcoming presidential elections. And they might even agree on a future presidential candidate who might be kind of the representative of the main elite actors. Vladimir Putin has not named a successor that we know of. Do we have an idea of what he might be looking for in a potential successor? Or has anyone stepped up or emerged 
during the war against Ukraine or over the past couple of years who could be a presidential candidate? Before the war and also after the war, the general problem of appointing or assigning or anointing a future successor remains uh, risky. And that is usually what is referred to as the, as the crown prince problem. So you anoint a successor and a successor might, might feel safe and emboldened and this heightens uh, the risks that this anointed successor will turn against uh, the autocrat, uh, might even launch uh, some kind of a coup or assassinate uh, the autocrat. And that's why usually successors are announced in public only very late in, in the process because this uncertainty, that's one of the main main instruments of ruling in an authoritarian regime. And, and Putin also has remained true to this basic rule. If we think about 2007, where he announced this competition of successors back then between Sergei Ivanov from the Silviki and Dmitry Medvedev from kind of the civilian bureaucrats fairly late in the process and there was a short period of competition and later on we obviously knew that President uh, that Medvedev would be the interim president between 2008 and 2012. The second argument why it's fairly risky is that if uh, counter elites or some other competing elites know who the, the designated successor will be, they might, might actually be tempted to mobilize against this successor because they now know against whom to mobilize. And this might actually trigger some collective action, which wasn't really possible before. And it's also fairly risky in terms of kind of a, in a post-transition scenario that this designated successor might actually lose, for example, a, a future presidential election. So this is for the general problem why I think this whole speculation of who might be the next successor of Putin is misplaced at the moment. But what we certainly see at the moment is all sorts of different signaling. So we have uh, pro-war, outspoken elite actors that outspokenly signal loyalty to Putin. We think of uh, Duma speaker Volodin, for example, or ex-president Medvedev, who writes a telegram post every other day to mainly signal loyalty to Putin. There's also the, the deputy head of the presidential administration, Kirienko, who is responsible now for Donbass, but also other state uh, business tycoons such as Gazprom's Alexei Miller, who actually said that and in the very early phase of the war that, that now the most important thing is to rally around the president, so Putin. The other kind of signaling we have seen that some actors, at least in the early phase, have argued in favor of negotiations with Ukraine to a quicker end to the war. If we remember some statements of Peskov or Medinsky, who was the head of the negotiation team. So that was some, some time ago already. But also we have seen like public statements of uh, Chemizov from Rostec, who kind of, even though he basically supports the, the whole war against Ukraine, but he still said that it, it's also crucial that Russia would maintain a part of the global economy, meaning kind of if you translate it into bureaucracy speak in, in Russia, that means obviously it, it, it wouldn't be too beneficial to Russia if the war goes on for too long. And the third group are fairly silent or pretend to do a business as usual, like uh, PM Mishustin or Moscow Mayor Sabyanin. They do signal support for Putin, obviously, in the war, but just as much as necessary. But then they certainly do not try to overcomply and signal more loyalty than would be necessary in this context. And oftentimes these different signals that we've seen in the past months during the war has been interpreted that this is kind of a parade of potential Putin successes and uh, like Putin views 
potential successes within these various camps. But I would still argue that it is mainly right now about demonstrating positions toward towards the war, towards economic policy, towards uh, certain domestic issues. But it's not yet a race of uh, successes that we have seen because it would be risky, as, as I've said before. And there's no active grooming, I would say, by Putin himself. So Putin doesn't appear to be lining up his own replacement. But he's hardly the first autocratic leader to try and ignore the transfer of power problem. Take Soviet leader Joseph Stalin, for example. So after World War II, particularly in the later 1940s and early 1950s, Stalin, we now understand, suffered a number of strokes. He was in ill health. He was more erratic than he had been before. And people were looking to see who might succeed him. But he did two things, I would say. One, not prepare clearly, efficiently to name a successor. And secondly, he carried out a number of purges of his closest supporters. That's Ronald Grigor Suni, the William H. Sewell Jr. Distinguished University Professor of History and a professor of political science at the University of Michigan. So people like Molotov were criticized, Mikoyan. His sons were arrested. Molotov's wife was arrested. And almost everybody was criticized in some way. So it looked like the one he might favor was someone who looked the drabest of all, Georgi Malenkov. It turns out Malenkov was more talented than we think and much more talented than he looks in the movie The Death of Stalin, where he's a complete idiot. But in fact, Malenkov and Khrushchev were the two that were best position, along with the chief of the secret police, Beria, right? Leonti Beria. So those were the three who were likely to come to power, but Stalin hadn't favored any of them. When Stalin died, there were, I'd say, two kinds of reactions. One was panic, a sense of insecurity. How can the country hold together? How can they rule without Stalin? He was this not only demonic, but deified figure. And now they had to deal without him. And they quickly decided that they would, would have a kind of collective leadership, that no one would simply take over and become a new Stalin. So power was divided largely between Malenkov on the one side, who became head of government, and Khrushchev, who eventually became head of the party. But Beria, who was allied closely with Malenkov, was also in the picture very powerfully because he controlled the secret police, and had men with arms at his disposal. Khrushchev very quickly conspired and convinced Malenkov that Beria was a real danger to the collective leadership, to the survival of the regime, a number of other things. And so they conspired with the help of the army, with the help of General Marshal Zhukov, and they arrested Beria, tried him secretly, and executed him by the end of the year. So Khrushchev and Malenkov emerged, and Khrushchev, being a very clever infighter, eventually isolated Malenkov and became head of the party, not only the party, but government as well. Was the Soviet system better equipped to handle succession after weathering Stalin's death? Because we have several other leaders die in office. So Khrushchev was removed by a coup by his own allies, and because he had become a little erratic, he had he had passed his 70th birthday without indicating that he was going to retire. And so there was a kind of coup in October 1964, and he was removed. 
And interestingly enough, in what one of my Soviet friends called the Second October Revolution, he wasn't killed. He wasn't in prison. He wasn't put on trial. He was retired to a comfortable estate outside of the city. And there he secretly wrote his memoirs. And then the Brezhnev regime came to power, right? And they lasted for 17 or 18 years. They grew older in office. There wasn't much change. They didn't prepare well for a succession. And when Brezhnev died in 1982, Andropov came to power, the former head of the secret police, a very capable, tough leader who was interested in some kinds of reform. And he's the one who brought Gorbachev into the highest offices of the Soviet Union. But very quickly, after only two years, uh, Andropov became ill. He had kidney disease, which the Soviets said was some kind of respiratory or cold or something like that. But it was very serious and he was dying. And he wanted Gorbachev to succeed him. But in fact, the old cronies of Brezhnev who were around were a little afraid of this young guy. Young, he was in his 50s, but young for Soviet leaders. So the old septuagenarians and so forth, they chose Chernenko, who could hardly speak and could hardly stand on his feet. He lasted a year. And finally, they gave in and said, okay, we need somebody younger, at least someone, you know, who can stand on his feet and so forth. So Gorbachev came to power, launching what essentially was a revolution that led to the collapse of the Soviet system. From what you're saying, it seems as though these transfers of power that went on in the 70s and 80s were a lot less disruptive for the Soviet regime itself. I happen to have been in the Soviet Union when Khrushchev was removed from power and then did research there the, the next year. And there was hope in the mid and late 60s that the new regime would be more sensible, less erratic. Uh, that there'd be significant reforms. There were some attempts uh, in economics with the Prime Minister Kasigan, but none of it paid off. The Brezhnev regime and the Chernenko regime were, were basically status quo powers. Andropov didn't last long enough to change things for people. And only when Gorbachev came to power, and maybe it was too late by then, I don't think so, but if he had been more sensible in his reforms, it might have succeeded. There's a very good book right now by uh, a very good scholar and a kind of friend of mine, Vlad Zubak, called The Collapse. And it shows that there were possibilities of reviving the regime, but you had to do it sensibly. And, and Gorbachev simply didn't have the iron will and didn't properly use the power he had to do a kind of gradual and effective economic first and then maybe political reform. Do you think that examining these Soviet-era transfers of power is helpful for understanding what might happen in Russia in the event of Putin's death? To some extent, I think that you still have a regime in Russia which is not democratic, in which there's elite rule, but you don't have under Putin a strict party structure. You've got a much more chaotic, oligarchic kind of system in which Putin has become indispensable. So Putin is the keystone that holds this bizarre regime of kleptocrats together. And by the way, he's not the most radical or the most nationalistic or the most authoritarian of that group. There can be far worse people than Putin. But I don't see any decision, any movement to making the regime ready for transition. 
Rather, the it seems to be moving toward, let's keep Putin in power as long as possible, because in that jerry-built system of, of people who are ripping off the Russian people, he keeps everything in place, right? Now, lately, because of his launching of this war unexpectedly in Ukraine, the regime is being tested very radically. And a new fragility could possibly arise. Right now, they're still rallying around him. People support, about 75% seem to support the war in Russia. But you can sense cracks in the regime, especially after the initial failures in Ukraine. But I don't see any movement or any conspiracies or anything like that to remove Putin at the present time. People are too dependent on him. People, they rally around him because there's really no alternative and their lives and fortunes are connected to his well-being. Should he be removed, Russia would be in dire straits, particularly if the war is still going on. Putin launching a full-blown war against Ukraine has certainly thrown his grip on power into sharp relief and underscored his role as the key decision maker when it comes to Russia's foreign policy. But whether or not Moscow's foreign policy would be any less aggressive if Putin weren't in power is a hotly debated question. To get some perspective on Putin's legacy on the world stage, I turn to Domitila Sagramoso, a senior lecturer in security and development in the Department of War Studies at King's College London. Putin has been a central figure in shaping Russian foreign policy since he became, you know, president of Russia. So he very much determined relations towards the West and also towards the former Soviet states. I think what is interesting when we think about Putin is that there has been an evolution from his early days when he was trying to develop some form of partnership with the West and primarily with the European countries and the European Union. This happened, you know, from 2000 until roughly 2005 and six. He also was trying to see if he could re reach sort of agreements on issues of relevance with the United States. But then, you know, a lot of disappointments occurred and he became a lot more hostile, primarily as a result of Western policymaking and also because he became a lot more confident of Russia's sort of capabilities. Russia uh, developed economically quite effectively during the first years of his presidency. The prices of energy commodities increased quite substantially, so that gave him a much stronger sort of economic position. He also tried to sort of transform the military forces, so that put him in a position to think that Russia was sort of achieving a position of, of relevance in the international arena and that Russia should become a, a relevant pole in this multipolar world that Russia was trying to set up. The hope of Putin was that Russia would become one of these leading poles in the international system. So by the mid-late 2000s, we really find an active policy by Russia to become predominant in the former Soviet space and also to become an equal partner and to be recognized as an equal partner by the West. And also what is very interesting is that uh, throughout this period, we see that a lot of the narratives and ideological background that underpin this foreign policy became much more relevant. So an emphasis on Russian nationalism and, and sort of a militarization of education, for example, a revival of glorifying the Soviet and Tsarist past, and sort of a clear attempt to show or to develop the narrative that Russia is a great power that needs to be considered in issues of international relevance. 
And increasingly, we see Putin sort of talking about the need to have very tight relations with what we would call the, the, the countries that belong to the USSR, maybe with the exception of the Baltic states, but specifically with countries such as Belarus, Ukraine, and the countries in the Caucasus, Kazakhstan, and other Central Asian states. So this idea very much that all these countries of the US, former USSR belong to a single civilizational space where they would share a similar language. Russia would be sort of the lingua franca. So this is a sort of the legacies of the Soviet and the, the imperial period where these new countries now, they all belong to a single entity and they shared a common legacy. They had a very close sort of personal ties, economic ties industrial ties. So all these elements started to play a really important part and Putin tried to create mechanisms of increased cooperation and integration of the former Soviet states within economic security structures. Some people have argued that up until he launched this full-scale invasion of Ukraine, Putin was rather risk-averse or cautious when it came to foreign policy. Others argue that this is just the culmination of unchecked Russian aggression under Putin. How do you see it? Is this some kind of deviation or something which, in retrospect, Putin was clearly building up to? I think a bit of both. I think that Putin clearly sort of uh, took a um, gamble, especially when we think about the annexation of Crimea, his support for sort of a pro-Russian insurgency in the Donbass, his effort to influence Ukrainian policies so that Ukraine would become much closer associated to Russia and not so much aligned geoeconomically and geostrategically with the West. He also was very much behind the decision in 2008 to utilize force in Georgia, even though at the time Medvedev was president, he was prime minister, and there is very little doubt that Putin was very much also behind these decisions. We also know clearly how he decided to intervene militarily in Syria, and that was also quite risky because we had a very relevant American presence there militarily, so that could have created a lot of conflict and risk of collision with American forces or the Western coalition forces. So he was someone who took gambles, but I think that there was a perception that these actions could be managed in some way. And maybe because our responses were not so harsh and some of these operations were not seen as immediately threatening the security of the European continent, then the responses were more measured. And when we are talking about Ukraine, the sanctions were very targeted and they often were bypassed. So the perception in Russia was very much that the West was very weakened and was not able to react forcefully towards any kind of Russian action. I think if we look at the military invasion of Ukraine in 2022 in February, I think we're talking about a very different uh, kind of operation, which is much more significant and whose objectives are not of a limited nature. And I think that is what surprised many of those who were maybe not looking in detail at Russia's behavior. The objectives of completely what they call denazify Ukraine, which basically means eliminate anyone who opposes sort of uh, Ukraine that is closely aligned with Russia and the annexation, it seems that's their goal of large chunks of Ukrainian territory. I mean, this is something that I would call quite a significant escalation. 
the extent of force that has been used, the objectives of undermining even the existence of Ukraine as a state and denying the existence of Ukraine as a state is a very strong stance. And it clearly indicates a very strong sort of imperialist mindset. I think Putin had a, a geostrategic vision, which included Ukraine as part of a geopolitical project that would allow Russia then to consider itself as a great power in the international arena. I think the presence of Ukraine closely aligned or further integrated into Russia was seen as essential for, for Russia to become a great power and to have a stronger presence in the European continent. Putin is approaching his 70th birthday, and some experts have argued that at this point he's trying to cement his legacy, particularly in the foreign policy sphere. Do you think that by launching a full-scale invasion of Ukraine, he has succeeded in cementing Russia's foreign policy priorities for the foreseeable future? Do you think it's possible that Russia's foreign policy could remain largely the same, even if Putin were no longer in power? These are two questions. And the first one is a very relevant one, because I think that what Putin was trying to make sure was to ensure that his legacy remained intact as, as a figure that managed in a way to sort of gather what many in Russia would call Russian lands, you know, emulating a bit what the, what the Tsars did in the, you know, from the 14th to the 16th century. So this idea that the Slavic lands of Russia, Belarus and Ukraine, you know, become sort of united in some way. And I think that was something that probably was very much in his mind. And that's the narrative that we're hearing very much coming out from the Kremlin and Kremlin spin doctors, so to say. I think that this full-scale invasion of Ukraine is not really going according to plan. So I don't think that Putin is going to be able to cement as a, as a foreign policy priority in the future. I think that it's very difficult now to make any predictions because we really don't know how this war is going to go, how it's going to end, how long it's going to take, whether it's going to be a negotiated outcome, whether Ukrainians are going to be able militarily to dislodge Russia from the areas that they have occupied. So I think it's really very difficult now to predict if this is going to be the vector of Russian foreign policy. I think this is going to be the area of contestation for many, many years to come. Even if Russia manages to sort of consolidate its military wings in Ukraine, they're always going to be challenged. So this will remain an issue of concern for whoever comes after him. This is really the key defining moment of how Russia is going to develop relations with the West, how the West is going to figure out its relations with Russia. In Europe, this is a key question of European security. And for countries that are neighboring Ukraine, this is the number one priority. So now NATO members are going to try to protect their allies in the eastern fronts or fringes of NATO. These countries are going to become much more relevant. There's going to be probably a much stronger presence, as we know, of NATO member states on the eastern northern part and the eastern southern flanks of Romania, Bulgaria, but also Poland, the Baltic states. So, you know, this is really very, very significant for European security. Even if Putin would go for whatever reason, you know, we cannot guarantee that there would be a complete change of foreign policy out outlook especially now, maybe in, in you know, five years' time. But now I think that the sort of outlook of Russia feeling that it is in some very strong confrontation with the West, that it needs to secure its Western flank, that it's sort of this nationalist 
conception about Russia as a great power and about many of these territories uh, in Ukraine being sort of, in a way, part of Russia or had to be closely aligned to Russia remains very relevant. So I think that we shouldn't be under any illusions that, you know, things will change radically if tomorrow there is someone else in power. But, you know, it could happen that if someone else comes to power, then they take a more conciliatory tone towards the West. And I think there is always a constituency in Russia of those who want to develop closer ties with the West and with Europe. And that constituency is not going to go away. It's very difficult to know if, you know, a new leadership is going to radically change or not. But I mean, my hint is that probably if it happens immediately now, you know, the outlook might look maybe similar or maybe not. It's very hard to predict. Russia still does hold elections and there are presidential elections scheduled in Russia for 2024, which is not that far off. What does having these elections on the horizon mean for Putin and his regime at this point? Do you think it's possible that he might not run again or that he could resign or that we might see Putin take a different exit from the presidency? Well, I think what's for sure is that there's still no no formal succession rules and that generally adds to the uncertainty about Putin's plans. What we know is that with the constitutional reform in 2020, Putin gave himself the opportunity to run again for presidential elections in, in 2024. So it's still a fair assumption to say that 2024 will be the main, apart from the war, of course, the main focal point of regime dynamics and also elite dynamics. And at this point, I think there is no indication that Putin has the intention to step down or even appoint a successor. And equally, I think there's not really an indication that Putin believes himself that he would not be able to win yet another round of presidential elections. I think one of the crucial questions is really about the length of the, the current war, so for how long this will be ongoing still. And I think it's also a fair assumption to make that in the preparations for the war, the presidential elections in 2024 were included in calculations about war efforts. So I think it really played a role that, that Putin and his entourage thought that this would be a quick victory. So it would get done with this fairly soon, and that would leave more time for preparing for the 2024 elections. But now we are, we are apparently in a prolonged war, and the impact of the economic shock, all kinds of consequences we might think of uh, such a war might have for um, kind of the domestic situation in Russia itself, they are postponed, and they will actually be felt most severely when, in fact, preparations should be starting for the 2024 elections. So this coincidence, I think this was not part of the calculations for the 2024 elections before the full-scale invasion of Ukraine. And that's, that's important to keep in mind how the presidential administration and Putin himself will deal with this coincidence of the upcoming elections and the impact of the economic shock and the war itself. Part of the reason I wanted to do this episode was because we consistently see reports and speculation, particularly in the Western press, that Putin is seriously ill or that he has been seriously ill for a long time. How do you interpret this kind of speculation? Well, it's certainly one thing that is for sure that the health of Putin as an as a autocrat is a matter of national security. That's where there is this huge veil of secrecy um, around this issue. And that is something that is noteworthy by itself. 
So that being said, I think we don't really know a lot about the state of, of Putin's health. I think there are two issues where we can be fairly certain. So I think one is that he seems to be really be having problems with his back after this notorious flight with the cranes. I think that uh, has been substantiated elsewhere with credible reporting. And the other one is the investigation that most the listeners of the podcast will have heard about, the, the project investigation that Putin is basically taken care of by a certain number of, increasing number of doctors and some doctors specialize on thyroid cancers. So I think that is kind of a fairly well-documented issue where we can be sure that this might be the case. But on the other hand, we don't really know how this affects how Putin governs and um, how this might affect Putin's long-term view of in how long he might be able to govern, how long he might be willing to, to govern. Apart from that, I think we are really moving into the area of speculation about Putin's health. But I think there's some interesting comparative research on what happens when authoritarian rulers die suddenly. I think one really interesting comparative research by Erica Franz and Andrea Kendall-Taylor shows that even though we presume that personalist authoritarian regimes are fairly unstable due to this personalized nature of the regime, that in fact they are fairly persistent in the short run, but also in the long run. So the risk of regime collapse after one year or even after five years, it's fairly small. So I think even if we assume that some kind of sudden death of Putin occurred, then still our major assumption would be that, at least in the short term, the most likely scenario that the regime will reproduce itself and we will see yet another form of authoritarian rule in Russia at some, uh, in some form. That's our show for this week. Thanks for tuning in. The Naked Pravda's third season will return next Friday to interrogate another what-if question looming over Russia. On future episodes, we'll ask experts what happens if sanctions lead to disaster in commercial aviation, what happens in Ukraine if China invades Taiwan, what happens to Chechen dictator Ramzan Kadyrov if Russia loses in Ukraine, and more and more and more. Until next time, thank you again. Mm -hmm.